Season 1, Episode 1 podcast, the podcast where we try to help you decide what you should be watching. Each episode, we watch the first three episodes, not the first three episodes, <laughs> only the first episode, we don't have that much time, of three new TV series, and this week we watched His Dark Materials, The Witcher, and McMillions. But first, Allie's going to give us an update on what she's been watching. So, first of all, I have a bit of a guilty pleasure uh, to admit that I think I've talked about before on this podcast. As much as I hated Island, I went back and watched the entirety of it. <laughs> That's a callback to episode one. <laughs> yes. uh, it was just like something that I, I just wanted to know more. And my opinion stayed the same of like, this is a great concept. And I wish it had been put in the hands of someone more capable. Also, Kate Bosworth's crazy accent. She's from Galveston, Texas. Um, it's later revealed. Her wonky, thought it was like an Atlanta accent. You know, it's people from Galveston. <laughs> They're wild accents. <laughs> um, I also, when I'm bored, I look through Netflix also. So I happened upon an old show that I think originally aired on CW. Only lasted one season. It's called No Tomorrow. And... Again, I just keep watching these shows that are, like, horribly bad, but I just want to keep watching them. It is about a guy that believes that uh, the apocalypse is about to happen in six months. And he meets kind of the love love of his life, and but she is sane. And so it's about how he teaches her to live like there's no tomorrow, because he really believes that there is no tomorrow. It is silly, and only ten episodes. So if you like... Kind of like a Walter Mitty? Yeah. Type concept. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and like buttoned up woman with a like crazy guy. Um, it's cute. But go in knowing it got canceled after one season. And it's a little out there. And then just my regulars, Brooklyn Nine Nine is back and on NBC and Oh, are the new episodes on Hulu? They are. Mm-hmm. Um, there are now three, uh or four. Uh and then the end of the good place. Good. Is that also on Hulu now? It is, I think. It's at that. So this season is on Hulu. Um, okay. The past season's on Netflix. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, I always forget that. I get so confused, and then they do that thing where they take off, like, the after they play four, they take off the first one, and then I oftentimes have missed it. And I'm like, crap! Mm. Now I have to wait. Yeah. Um, this last season's good. Uh, good, not great. <laughs> I would say. That's <laughs> what I've been watching. And we have a special guest with us today. Oh, that's right. I guess we should introduce him. <laughs> Good actually, evening. I was waiting for you to say something so that I could say, boy, Amy, your voice got lower. Ha! <laughs> ah, yes, I am Amy. No, I'm Joe. Back from episode two where maybe you couldn't hear me very well. But I have returned and we have fixed some of our situations. So hopefully you can make me out this episode. Glad to be back, ladies. Amy is off jaunting through Africa. So I guess she has other things going on. <laughs> Alright, so first of all, we're going to dive into His Dark Materials. Now, His Dark Materials is airing in the U.S. on HBO and in the U.K. on BBC One. Um, there are about eight episodes. They're not about eight episodes. There are eight episodes, and they're about one hour each. Fantasy drama TV series based on books of the same name by Philip Pullman, and it's following our adventurous, brave... Orphan Lyra. Lyra? Lyra. 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 Um, 
as she is trying to, she's in an alternate world, and basically it seems she's trying to uncover some secrets, and there's a lot of secrets going on here, and children are disappearing, there's fantastical creatures, there's animal companions, it's definitely your childhood fantasy TV series done in an adult way, I guess? I'd argue that the whole series was adult from the beginning. Have either of you read the books? No, I am not. All also, right. is this the same universe that Pan's Labyrinth lives in? No. Okay. Different no. Pan. Yeah, Lyra's <laughs> Pan is short for Pantalmion, uh, which is the full name of her demon, which is one, one aspect that lets you know that this world is not like fantasy worlds that you've seen before. So you basically, we have her living out of school in... Um, not any school. Jordan Ox- College. Jordan College Oxford. at Oxford University. And that's where she's grown up. We have James McAvoy playing her uncle, and we also feature, well, Lyra is played by Daphne Keene, which I didn't recognize her from anything else, and when I looked her up, she didn't have many credits that I recognized. Um, Also notable in here is Ruth Wilson, um, who she's been making a splash in, like, Luther and a lot of, uh, like, Netflix and streaming series. The Affair. Was you Fair also British? No. Okay. Um, this is produced by Bad Wolf, who did The Night Of, and by New Line Cinemas, which Lord of the Rings trilogy. Uh, more importantly, I actually, so in an effort to prepare for this, I rewatched the opening scene from The Golden Compass, the 2007 movie, based off the first book in Philip Pullman's trilogy, and New Line produced that too. So my suspicion is they own the rights. And oh. after the disaster, unfortunately, that was a Daniel Craig movie, they have waited for this golden age of television to take the longer treatment of the television series. Also produced in conjunction with the BBC. Yeah, and this show has already been renewed for season two for another eight episodes. Ultimately, for me, like I was not aware of the book series or the previous iterations, and I just watched it thinking, like, this is made for somebody who knows and loves this world, and mm-hmm. I am not there. Yeah, it really dives right into it and kind of, because I'm the same way, I hadn't watched any, or I hadn't read any books or seen any of the other movies, and I was very much, I was holding back from asking Joe questions about what was going on, and instead I wrote some down. So Joe, can you explain what these demon-slash-animal creatures are? Sure. So, without giving too much away, the demons effectively represent portions of each character's soul. So, in <laughs> in the the lore of Phil Pullman's uh, Oxford and the, the Greater World, it's essentially a portion of your soul that is physically out there for everybody to see. So, for children, the reasoning goes their final characteristics haven't kind of been settled, right? They're young, they're, they're still learning about the world, and their personality traits haven't entirely hardened. So... Their demons kind of change shape and form based on whatever they're feeling or whatever application vessels at the time. For adults, once you hit maturity, as evidenced in the scene where we see Tony becoming a man with Egyptians, your demon will settle on a final form that represents some aspect of your personality. So, dramatizers of this series always get a little bit of a bonus when introducing characters, because having a character's demon appear is an easy way of saying these are traits that govern this character. Okay. So then there's also this group called the Magisterium, which I take it as kind of like a government? Yes. So the Magisterium is very close to 
a theocracy, right? We see the large sweeping complexes that are designed to evoke feelings of grandeur. And as the plot develops, they'll go into a little bit more about how the magisterium rules. But the principal characters were all religious in nature in that one scene we saw of the magisterium. Okay. I mainly just picked that up because they were calling anybody who spoke badly about the magisterium heresy. I read that. That was a heresy question mark? Magisterium question mark? Yeah. Yeah, this is this is an alternate universe England that is ruled by a theocratic church like society. So think of perhaps if Cromwell had won the English Civil War. I guess he did, but stayed in power for a little bit longer then. Okay. So that would have been nice to know while watching the show. Yeah, I needed a little more background. It really jumped right into it. Yeah. Um, and it did have tiny print syndrome at the beginning, where it was a yes. lot of words and very tiny print. And I was like, I had just too many words. And where and they spelled <laughs> And where they spelled Demon Damon. So when yeah. I was reading it to myself, I said Damon. Is this about Matt Damon? <laughs> That was a little bit jarring to me, too, the first time I read the book. I wasn't sure how to pronounce it. And actually, in the novel form, they use the conjoined A-E symbol. So it's not D-A-E, it's like D-A-E. Oh, yeah. uh, so that makes the pronunciation a little clearer. Not that that helped nine-year-old Joe, <laughs> who didn't know how to pronounce that uh, that character, yeah. but it doesn't Don't feel clear. bad, Joe. When I read Harry Potter for the full run of the books until the movies premiered, I thought her name was Hermoyne. Hermoyne. Oh, I read it as that, too. <laughs> I was a Hermoyne. <laughs> yeah. Probably like Victor Crumb was introduced. <laughs> <laughs> um, so were the books, were they kind of like children's books? So they're definitely aimed at a young adult audience. Okay. The themes the books deal with become very adult in nature, and I don't want to spoil too much, yeah. so I won't give it away. Yeah, I would say just, just judging from this first episode that the show is not for children. Yes, it definitely pre- presents, uh, it actually did a surprisingly good take. It's very easy to go down a path where you present this world as being very dark and full of terror, but I was pleasantly surprised at the number of sweeping landscape shots, especially the shots of Oxford College in various uh, times of day, uh, and then also the general brightness that they were able to find from some of the scenes, uh, especially when you got to the travel portions of the very original first episode. And I guess apart from, like, children getting mad, there wasn't too many, like, horrible things that kids should not be watching. Or True. to get worse, because <laughs> No, I mean, uh, certainly as far as the first episode goes, the, the, the groundwork is all laid. I would say if you are a listener with certain religious convictions, uh, perhaps head further into this series with a note of caution, uh, and don't try to read too much into it. Yeah. Also of note, uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda is in the show. Um, he was not in the first episode, but he is said to be appearing later. That was one of my notes, was I thought Lin-Manuel Miranda was supposed to be in this. <laughs> It's also also worth noting that the opening scene in which Lyra is delivered to Jordan College actually derives from a fourth book Philip Pullman wrote uh, only a couple of years ago, The Book of Dust, which deals with Lyra's birth and how she came to end up at Jordan College. It departs slightly from that original uh, note, but it's uh, it's it technically expands two books here. So, will you guys be watching more? They all know. <laughs> Absolutely. I intend to follow this through. I think the, the, the long-form treatment is best applied to novels, uh, especially because you have so much characterization, so many characters you can dive into. Especially fantasy, because it's building other worlds, and that takes a lot yes, of time. Yes, exactly. Um, I think we got through in the first episode what the 2007 movie accomplished in like the first 15 or 20 minutes, and that's, as you evidenced, Ali, that's a lot to cram into uh, a movie, so um, I'll definitely be watching Joe is watching more. I guess that means I'm watching more. 
You'll like it, I promise. Okay. I mainly just, I want to know if Ruth Wilson's character is good, because there was, like, questions there. She touched her face so much. That, so, I, uh, it was very noticeable to me. <laughs> well, there was a lot of, like, yeah, so back, Ruth Wilson's you know? character takes on Lyra's character in Lyra. Lyra. <laughs> Lyra's character in what's like an apprentice sort of thing, we find out. And as they're meeting and talking, she's like constantly rubbing the child's face. And I found it alarming. <laughs> I don't know what that symbolizes. <laughs> <laughs> want. I think she wants to like ingratiate herself with Lyra. And yeah. So she's trying to... I couldn't decide if she was good or bad. Yeah, I I mainly just want to know that. I want to know, like, why she's taking such an interest in Lyra and why she's adventuring. But I'm also like, that could be difficult to do. <laughs> You're not in for the eight hours? Right, yeah. Well, now it'll be 16 hours, because after you watch season one, are you going to be committed to season right. two? Yes. <laughs> what are the biggest questions you guys have going into episode two here? Oh, yeah. really, yeah, I just wanted. to. Okay. I'm curious about more, I guess. Okay. Yeah. All right. So let's get into The Witcher. Sure. So The Witcher is a 60-minute episode. The season runs here for eight episodes, so eight 60-minute episodes. And here we're talking about season one, episode one, The End's Beginning, uh, because that tells you so much about what you know from the series. It stars Henry Cavill as the titular Witcher and Freya Allen as his... Young Charge Siri, uh, and the, they don't actually start together, but as a veteran of one Witcher video game, I feel like I know kind of that they're going to end up together, so I can I can reveal that on, on air. I think that was pretty apparent from watching the episodes. Yeah. Multiple people tell both characters, you are your... You are destined. You are destined. Yeah. yeah. So, The Witcher is based on a well-known novel series by Andrzej Sapowski, and I'm not even going to spell Andrzej. It's got a Z in it. But suffice it to say, the author is credited as a producer on every episode here, and I believe he helped write each episode as well. So, unlike Game of Thrones, which we'll return to in a moment, uh, this author has clearly evinced a desire to be firmly involved in the production of these episodes, uh, beyond just producing credit. Also, you may recognize from the cast list, the only other name I recognized, and it was only a partial recognition, Lars Mikkelsen, brother of well-known Mads Mikkelsen, plays Stregobor, a morally ambiguous mage. Who, what else is he in? What do well, you recognize? Well, his brother Mads was the bad guy in Casino Royale. Oh, okay. I was like, yeah, because I was looking at who was in this, and besides Henry Cavill, I was like, I don't know who any of these people are. Henry Cavill, of course, being Superman. Superman with blonde hair. Yeah, well, uh, like bleached Legolas, hair. Legolas hair. Right. Yeah. It's, yeah. The, it's the Legolas cut. Yeah. Um, so, the the opening episode kind of, it actually starts with a very interesting Bambi reference. Did anybody else pick up on Bambi vibes? Little deer, oh, deer. dipping its cool lips down to the water. Yeah. Uh, of course, much like Bambi, it does not go well uh, for the deer in the opening sequence here. We open with a monster fight. The Witcher is, is taking yeah. we on. Get, it's a lot of fighting. We get a lot of fighting throughout the episode, so you definitely have, like, your kind of epic battle scenes with people's heads getting ripped off at the jawbone and um, things like that. I wanted to ask you, Joe, did they... The, so, I've overheard Joe playing the video game, and the voice, Henry Cavill's voice, it just sounds exactly like the game of what I've, what I've overheard you playing. 
It was really spooky to me, actually. I, I wonder, so I think Cavill has gone on the record as saying he's played the game. Okay. Uh, so that that could definitely be part of it. But also, at least in the video game, the character doesn't have the most emotive of voices. Well, no, that's the same because it's like, like, just low, low voice. Yeah, a little bit more uh, emotion than Batman, but not yeah. much more beyond that. I would put it on, it's on like the Batman tone. Yeah. And also the character as written, The Witchers is kind of morally ambiguous, great character who functions almost as not quite a traveling judge. I was trying to, to think about like what the what the modern day analog would be because in the the universe is setting, uh, and I actually give a lot of credit to uh, his dark material. HDM, yeah, I give a lot of credit to that for building the world a little bit better than The Witcher did because they throw you in head first and it's up to you, the viewer, to figure things out. Mm-hmm. And I didn't think there were enough clues. Uh, you have to figure out why witchers are so reviled, and it only kind of comes full circle at the epi- end of the episode. See, so I actually, I was very surprised. I really enjoyed The Witcher. Same! Yeah. I, I was I, very surprised. I, I was, was not expecting that. I was very, con- I think one of my notes was like, I was confused for about 80% of the episode, and then the last 20% was like, I'm in. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, because I was, I didn't really understand, like, the scene in the castle at first, where they were, like, all kind of whispering to each other while doing the knighting ceremony, and then it just, like, all came together by the end for me, and I was like, all right. I'm it. Tell me, tell me what's happening next. Yeah, just you'll be very confused until you know everything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just like give it, give it a chance because it, it's a lot. While his dark materials is very like fantasy mystery adventure, I think The Witcher is a lot more fantasy story driven adventure. Like, there's definitely a lot more plot, like a lot more plot-driven by characters rather than plot-driven by mystery and having to find things out and discover things along the way. Yeah. And as opposed to, like, his dark materials, it's like, I have no idea where this is going, and I don't really care. The Witcher, I was like, I don't know where this is going, and I want to know. Mm-hmm. And I, yeah, I was like, the FX definitely, I almost feel like they tried to make it look like a video. I wrote that same thing down. I was mm-hmm. like, are video are video games becoming more realistic, or are TV shows becoming looking more like video games? Like, I was like, I don't know which one it is. And maybe because <laughs> this one is based off of a video game, they yeah. kind of lean that direction anyway. Yeah, the the setting from the swamp to the the pendant castles to the open fields, everything had the aesthetic of the latest iteration. Yeah, maybe it was a lot of, like, soft focus on pieces. Yeah. And... I heard patterns in the music, too, where they resorted to string instruments, and I almost thought I heard a hurdy-gurdy for a moment. Uh, but that is very much the uh, the acoustic feeling of the video game series as well. Yeah. So I think they're just looking to capture people who played the game and want more Witcher in their life. Because who doesn't like a guy running around with two swords chopping people up? Especially when it's Henry Cavill. <laughs> <laughs> that was, like, the, I know they were probably making it look like video game, but that was a part of it. Like, I wasn't grossed out by the gore. I more just, like, rolled my eyes. Like, more of this. Yeah. Can I fast forward through this part? Yeah. So I've got a question for the two of you. Does this series compete with Game of Thrones? I I think it's still yet to tell, but I think it's of a very... I was thinking that part way through. It's of a very similar vein of um, story-driven, lots of battles, just, like, enough gore. Uh, there wasn't, there was, like, a tiny bit of romance here, but there wasn't any, like, 
Uh, I guess you noticed some nudity at one point. Oh, how could you not? Are you kidding me? (laughs) (laughs) Naked women in the background all throughout that wizard tower. None of you picked up on it. (laughs) I'm going to have to start setting my meters. Uh, One interesting parallel I noticed between Game of Thrones and The Witcher. So the first episode of Game of Thrones starts with an adventure by one of the young Stark children as they run all throughout the castle. I was thinking the same thing at the very beginning. I was going to say something to you, that it it was like very much like the beginning of the Winterfell scene where they're all running through. Yep, and we got the same thing with Ciri as she's seen in the streets and then running through trying to sneak around and so on and so forth. So that was one thing I noticed. I did not watch. I was a casual watcher of Game of Thrones. Mm -hmm. Um... But this one, yeah, like, I'm definitely intrigued by this. Yeah, it's setting you up for the long run. It's clear that there's complex political structures, there's going to be violence, there's going to be romance in all of its various forms, and there's a, a touch of magic to help set the setting without becoming a deus ex machina. Yeah. I would say for probably, like, the first, as Ali said, like, 80%, I was thinking, where do these two stories connect? It felt very disjointed to me, and I was like, what's happening? How are these going to connect? And then once they made the connection, I was like, oh... All right. <laughs> I get it. I am a little confused. So the girl calls the woman her grandmother? Yes. Is like She's like the age of her mother. Wait, what girl? Siri and the queen. Oh, I thought that was her daughter. That's what I thought too, but she kept on calling her grandmother. Oh, was she? At least as far as... So I'm like 80% of the way through The Witcher 3. As far as I've gotten, Siri's parentage has not been fully established, or maybe I missed that bit. Oh, uh, that would make more sense why, the, why they're like, she can't know, she knows there's exactly. something special about her. Exactly. So I was like, well, what's special about her parents? I don't see them having some weird genes yeah. they're passing on. So that makes more sense that it's a grandmother. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it's definitely a Netflix production. I felt the battle scene was a little lacking. I would have preferred to see something more along the lines of Game of Thrones in its later years, but Game well, of Thrones think- also didn't open their seasons with, uh, with anything on that scale. And we didn't have a lot of characters we were really invested in to watch in, like, a long battle sequence. So True. I thought it was kind of the perfect amount of time because it wasn't wasting your time with, like, just gratuitous fighting. Fair enough. I, I, I still take umbrage with the exactly placed arrow to the eye. But other than that, I, uh, I <laughs> And for all of the gratuitous violence that we saw, we didn't see the queen get injured. We saw, oh. we saw the king with the arrow through the eye, but we didn't see exactly. She just came back bloody. Yeah. Well, and then she went full Tommen. That, that's already aired. There are no spoilers there. <laughs> um, but anyway, would you keep watching, Joe? I would definitely stick through it for the first season. Yeah, I think there's a second season renewal. Already. Yeah, they said 2021. That was what yeah. Definitely, like, on the back burner, but I'll, it'll be one of, those, one of those that I get to eventually. Yeah. Given the serial nature of the video game and how the world is set up, they could easily run this for as many seasons as they wanted to. Well, I think it's been very popular so far. Yeah. I would, I was wary to check it out just because of how much people were enjoying it, which sounds terrible, but it was like a lot of people on my Facebook feed that I was like, I don't know that I watched what they watched, but then I watched it and I was like, okay, I get it. I get it. So I will also say that the show helped me close the loop on one of the open items that I've been trying to figure out in the video game, <laughs> which was, it explains how the Witcher got his nickname, which comes up at the end of the episode, so I won't spoil it for mm-hmm. everybody, but it's very alliterative, and it's always referenced off-screen in this video game, and I'm like, well, this isn't cool, I don't want to have to go back and play two other games just to figure out where this comes from, but this conveniently sets it up, so I, I will definitely watch it. <laughs> Alright, so, 
let's take a hard left. <laughs> and now we're going to leave the world of fantasy and head into the world of reality. So we're... Millions. Yeah, we're, we are heading... Our, this is our first non-scripted show. Um, uh, McMillions is produced by HBO, and between 1989 and 2001, there were zero legitimate winners of the big ticket prizes in the popular McDonald's Monopoly game. Uh, this documentary series dives into the FBI's investigation into what turned out to be a ginormous crime ring. Uh, there are six episodes. It premiered on February 3rd of this year, 2020. Um, some claims say that it was based off of a 2018 Daily Beast article, but by that time, the documentarians had already been researching this for five years. It originally came from, in 2012, there was a Reddit that was started um, mentioning this, and then one of the documentarians, James Lee Hernandez, was in love with the game as a kid, and so tried to find more research about this in 2012, 2013, and couldn't find anything. So he started filing Freedom of, Freedom of Information Act requests in 2013 um, with the Department of Justice and the FBI. And after three years of doing that, uh, both agencies granted him interviews with the key players in this, um, which the key players pretty much make this documentary. They are very kooky, uh, very kooky people. Uh, Mark Wahlberg is an executive producer on this. Marky Mark. Yeah. Which, did um, you notice there was some new kids on the block? I did not! In the soundscape, and I was like, well, I wonder how they got that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Also, another random fun fact, uh, if you're wondering why you haven't heard of this trial and this investigation before, the opening day of the trial was September 10th, 2001. Yeah. Um, And so it was... We got quickly very, very quickly by 9-11. Um, yeah, what did you guys think of McMillions? I had never heard of this before. Um, I think, Joe, you had, though, right? Yep. You were familiar with it? Yeah. The news of this just ruined my childhood. Yeah. <laughs> I well, loved McDonald's. Who did it? Yeah. Well, I thought, so part of it is just fun to watch because of the nostalgia aspect. Um, but and I they think, lean into it, and it's, like, yeah. super cheesy. They yeah. do, but they also, you can tell that the people who made this are just, like, slightly older than us because a lot of the commercials they're playing and the music they're playing, it's all from the early 90s, not the early 2000s when this investigation was going underway. Like, the New Kids on the Black song, The Right Stuff, is was out in, like, the late 80s. So I was like, I think there should be a little more NSYNC and Backstreet Boys playing in the <laughs> background here and all the old TV commercials they were playing for McDonald's. I was like, those look even older than early 2000s to me. See, it makes sense because I was thinking they were playing that stuff like when McDonald's game or when the Monopoly game started. Yeah, so maybe that's what it was. Is they were early ni- those were probably more early 90s. Um, yeah, I know Joe is itching to watch the next episode. Oh yeah, I loved it. I think I think like you say, Ali, they have a fantastically kooky cast of characters. Oh, yeah. Doug Doug Matthews. Yeah, yes. it really it really hinges. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. He is a character, and he's he is a reason to watch. He's just hilarious. Like I couldn't imagine working with him as an FBI agent, much less <laughs> a junior FBI agent. The golden fry suit that that anecdote just stuck with me. That would totally be me if I were in his <laughs> position. I give him I give him all the credit in the world for pulling that off. But yeah, this doubles as a fantastic criminal investigation. 
And it also shows you where the United States was immediately prior to 9-11, where federal resources were being expended on a fast food-related promotional giveaway. A million-dollar crime ring sure. was ultimately what it was. Sure, absolutely. Um, and one that spoke to the hearts of every American and what they could accomplish. <laughs> uh, but I also think that a case like without getting too much into it, a case like this would be far less of a story today, I feel. Because you look at a lot of the techniques they talked about in just the first episode where they're trying to cross-reference telephone numbers against each other and whatnot. That's an easy data science problem today, right? That, that yeah. you could probably get pretty, like, 75% of the way through in an interview and you're just going to go talk to And that's, I think, what helps make it able to extend to six episodes, is that you're having to watch them follow these breadcrumbs of having to do an undercover Thing, having to go through phone records and match up phone numbers, and it's not just like, oh, we searched this database, okay, we're done, which would be like an hour long special today. <laughs> yeah. It is interesting to see, though, because um, I imagine, like, still, you can't bring you can't bring a case to a TA or to anyone until everything is ready, and there's the fear that if it is this giant thing that one of your accomplices will be tipped off, and so I like I love that shows like this or documentaries make me want to be both an FBI agent and in charge of a crime ring. <laughs> 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 I just dip into the fantasy of both worlds. Yeah, I also like the idea that the criminals seem very like just from this first one they seem like very like average Joe people. Sorry, forgive me, Joe, <laughs> for using your name in that way, but. They just seem to be like your people you'd see in the grocery store, like nothing unusual. Yeah. And that's, I've heard that. Typical Florida man. Yes. <laughs> I've heard that's, uh, later episodes are going to dip more into that, that mm-hmm. they, some of these people ended up being victims of mm-hmm. this nebulous Uncle Jerry. Oh, okay. Um, and like to this day are not doing well. I'm um, excited. It's something, it's refreshing to have a true crime documentary that's not violent. Mm-hmm. Like this is more—it's not having a following a murderer or a rapist, which is what so much true crime hinges on nowadays. The gore aspect of it, so I'm I'm very intrigued by that. They murdered my hopes and dreams of a fair and equitable America. <laughs> I also like, they they did a such they did such an amazing job of putting intrigue into every part of this too. Of mm-hmm. like. When they reach out to McDonald's, you want to scream at this, like, no, don't tell them they might be in on it. (laughs) You've already told us. I actually, I would have liked to see a little bit more on the deliberations from the McDonald's staff. And I realize that these were probably very brief strategy meetings held in half-hour increments on afternoons back in 2001. Yeah. Uh, And those memories have, you know, since long been overwritten. But I would have loved to be a fly on the wall from a business case perspective. Because they do a good job of laying out, like, what's at stake for McDonald's here. And... It is a legitimate path that McDonald's could have said, you know what, we don't know what's happening, but we don't want to ruin the, the brand of the company by, by making this public and following through with it. Yeah, well, we see that people from McDonald's, though, are, are involved in the documentary, and they are saying, you know, like, well, you know, if it's not right, it's not right. Um, and I think we still have five more five more hours of information to get out, so we might learn a lot more about that, because I'm also like... How do we extend this? Five more hours. <laughs> I'm a little worried about that. I yeah. feel like from watching the first episode, they included a little bit, like just barely, but like a little bit too much to the mm-hmm. point that this being six hours, I feel like it could have been an HBO movie. Yeah. I agree. And it was such a great and like exciting pilot 
that I'm worried they like spilled too much in front of them and now there's not going to be as much exciting stuff to keep going. Right. Like they really hooked us all in. Right. Making a murderer didn't spill the name of the chief suspect in the first episode. <laughs> or at least not the one they want you to believe this. <laughs> Alright, so are we all still watching Millions? Absolutely. Oh, also, <laughs> uh, did this give you guys, did you watch Argo? Yes. No. It definitely gave me Argo vibes, as far as, like, mm. Oh, the, the whole setup in the, the very, film crew. Yeah, yeah. very yeah. similar, like a film, a fake film crew. Mm-hmm. And I love that Amy, the McDonald's rep, who was six months old at her job as, like, communications rep at McDonald's, yeah. had to teach these FBI agents, like, this is what a producer does, and this is what a, a camera operator does. Mm-hmm. And, like, as a, as a producer, she... She told the FBI agent, as the producers show up, like, you're coming off of a, uh, a golf course. <laughs> and then they get the footage of him practicing a swing. I think yeah. I think the real footage is really what helps bring this together. Yeah. You can that was a recreate. Oh, was that a recreation? Yeah. Okay. Uh, but they had the evidence footage of, yeah. uh, of people in the house and with the fake check and all that. And I think that helps tie it together because you see what people look like today. And you see what they look like back in Yeah, because that was the best thing when you go undercover as a film crew. Then you're going to have it all on film. <laughs> yeah. So that was... Fun to be able to see those pieces bring it all together rather than just only relying on recreations. Yeah. And I think the fact that the FBI agent Matthews had fun not only in the moment of the investigation, but like he's even, you can sense the fun that he's having retelling the story mm-hmm. that it makes the viewers have fun too. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. He's just entertaining to watch. I hope that wasn't the highlight of his career, but that is. No, all of them have publicly said this was the highlight. <laughs> Operation Unhappy Feel. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you guys so much for listening today. And if you watch any of the shows we've been watching and want to share your thoughts, please send us an email at s1e1podcast at gmail.com or drop into our messages on Instagram at s1e1podcast. And we thank you guys for tuning in. And we hope to be with you again soon. Bye. Bye.